Welcome to the Yellow Light Go podcast. I'm Noah. I'm Jacob. And uh, we're here talking about virtues still, uh, the virtues of creative people. And we're tackling a big one today, uh, failure. And uh, just a quick caveat, we're going to say this word so many times that uh, it's going to sound like complete gibberish. But, you know, that's kind of the point. Uh, We want to make sure, or if we can make it so that that word is even a little less toxic, a little less scary for you, by the end of this podcast, we've definitely succeeded. So one of the only areas where every person can pursue excellence is in music. Uh, If you come from a sports culture, uh, it can sometimes happen in athletics too, but in the culture that Noah and I grew up in, uh, music was really the first experience we had of understanding depth versus breadth, right? What it is to really master something, what it means to really pursue this concept of excellence. And obviously, for professional musicians, our lives are shaped around that pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, our relationship with failure, failure being the central means in which we progress, grow spiritually, creatively, artistically, um, is unique. Uh, it's intimate. Um, it's relational in a way that the average civilian usually can't relate to. Mm. And that makes us weird. <laughs> right 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 yeah i guess uh as as musicians as like myself thinking about my relationship to failure uh every every moment that i'm playing music uh is a possibility for failure and a possibility for success um right. it's one of the only places where i experience uh like the the flow state where i can sort of see the future uh and where I can play mute, like the music that is being played around me or that I'm playing personally happens uh, in my head before it happens in real life. And that, that thing that we all search for when we're playing music, when we're improvising or when we're writing or when we're performing, that thing only happens every once in a while. So every other moment we're playing music. Right, it's like happiness, right? It's just this happy little accident. That, yeah, that, and that it awesome. happens sometimes. And the, every moment we're not getting that is failure. Right. Right? And like we're so, just surfing on the edge of this wave, and the wave is failure. And when we're in that flow state, we can kind of stay up. Right. Stay buoyant for just a little longer, right, before we crash back into the waves again. Right. And that's the moment of success, but everything else is failure. Right. And I think the key and the big thing we want to talk about in this podcast, because as you described that, it was really, it was beautiful, but it could sound to someone who isn't familiar, who isn't acquainted with failure the way we are, as kind of a dark, morbid, almost depressing existence. And the point of this podcast is that that's actually not true, right? It's our ability... Uh, uh, to transform our relationship to failure mm-hmm. that's so central to growing, you know, creatively, spiritually, um, in our craft. Right, right. right. That's, I think that that's a powerful and important idea. It's kind of like, uh, you know, people think atheists are necessarily pessimists. Right. Right, but it's not necessarily the case, as you being an atheist are also largely an optimist. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's like transforming our relationship to life, right? It's the idea that, oh, well, if this is it, 
Right. That's that's incredible. Like we need to we can appreciate that even more. So let's talk about something that's a little bit uh, more, let's say, hands on or, or easy, more easily understandable to you know anybody. Like, what are some other areas in which our relationship to failure is uh, accessible, but maybe different than it is for other people? Oh, interesting. Well, I you know, I think the first aspect of it is the frequency and the obviousness. Uh, of of failing uh, that, that that we experience, like you were you were talking about, you know, playing music. So we're about to go on stage um, and do the uh, the CMT awards. I'm actually I'm here in Nashville right now with you. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the time when we do these podcasts, we're on the other side of the country, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in LA, um, and it's amazing how. Well, it's it, it's it's amazing, but also obvious that that every every note we're going to play in that show is under this incredible microscope, and it's it's super obvious when we failed uh, in our mm. musicianship mm-hmm. and our playing, and we spend a lot of our professional lives right on TV in a music studio, uh, surrounded by colleagues who have very very acute sense of of, of listening and of, of playing. Mm-hmm. So on the most obvious superficial level. Um, whenever we make mistake, we, we're growing. Our process of growth uh, through failing is one that's very, very public. It's very, very, right. it's, it's this yeah. shared social mm. experience. Everyone experiences failure and personal failures, but a lot of the time that very much is something that's internalized. It's privatized. It's, uh, it's in a way where, where it's on a smaller it's on a smaller scale in terms of audience. Right. You know, you fail your spouse. Like I forgot to uh, clean the chicken. Right. Or right you broke your like word to that the, one person. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. To your kid mm-hmm. or to yeah. whatever. Um, this is something different too because you know. There's there's more on the line, right? Sure. Or we fail. it's like seemingly, yeah. When you have ten thousand people watching your show, yeah, you know your mistakes are you know spectacularly public. Although one of the most profound things I think we've learned about failure in that venue in that arena that we've talked about a mm. lot is is how we tend to magnify the impact of that failure and and mm-hmm. the uh the sense you know that one wrong note can literally like you know especially when you're not a very experienced performer in front of 10,000 people can completely destroy you emotionally oh, right. yeah. whereas 99% of the audience isn't even going to notice right <laughs> It's it's of course the one percent that I care about, of right? Course, first of, of course, all. yeah. But uh, that comes from no. It does not care about any of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the longer the longer timeline you have uh, with anything, um, failures become smaller, uh, smaller upticks in terms of you know anxiety producing events in your life. Right. So like you know when you're driving, let's say the first time you drive. For like first time you get behind a wheel, uh-huh. just an example, right. and you hit that brake for the first time, and everybody in the car lurches forward because <laughs> you hit the brake too hard. That's terrifying. That's a terrifying moment. And you know, now after you've been driving for a while, you you get into a new car, that a car you haven't driven. Like say you rent a car and right. you hit that brake, and the same thing happens. It's a joke. It's like funny now, right. you know. You'll laugh in the car, and you know it's not a big deal. 
It's the same thing with music, even though you have 10,000 people watching you, if you've been doing it for a while, you start to understand the impact and import of small missed notes, of little tiny failures. Mm -hmm. But I also love that image of you being in the car because after you've mastered, you know, braking and you're with your friends in that rent a car or a new car, you've established in your ego, in your personality, through your ego, that you are Noah Needleman, I'm a good driver. That's become part of your identity. And mm. one of the other ways that we wrestle with failure um, that can be kind of unique or at least more consistent uh, than people in civilian life is that because our ego is wrapped up and I'm Noah Needleman, professional musician, you know, world-class studio musician, outstanding producer. Go on. the check's just getting bigger and bigger um allowing ourselves to fail or pushing ourselves to the edge of our artistry or ability uh creating more of an opportunity for failure but obviously growth on the other on the other side of that coin um means that the way in which we fail uh, is such a direct challenge to our our ego, mm, mm-hmm. our our even our core identity, right? Right, um, that it's really sort of a spiritual process. I mean, practicing for me, and sometimes we practice when we play, when we're actually on stage and performing. You know, it's still right. a type of practice, mm-hmm. especially the more. Uh, refined we become in our artistry and right. the more experience we have. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I, I guess I feel like now the only time I actually get to practice is when I am on stage. Right. You know, the right. rehearsal studio is for making decisions. Yeah. But then you're actually practicing your performance when you're on a stage. There's just no way to, there's no simulacrum in a rehearsal studio mm. for what happens on a stage. Sure. You said this to me so many times that you don't know a song until you play it live 30 times. That's right. When that stage is, I mean, it's not to say that you would be unprofessional and get to the stage without knowing the song inside and out, but there is a knowing the song before you get on stage, and then there is a knowing a song once it happens on stage. Right, right. That, and that, that knowing gets much deeper, but it's really... There's another old Jacobism that I say all the time. It's this, the gig that gets you ready for the gig. Right. Right. And so you have to go into this gig ready to fail. And I think that that is, that's something that hopefully everyone listening to this, you know, be they artists or someone who's trying to put up with an artist in their life, <laughs> as we say in the intro, um, can relate to, to a certain extent. But for us, um, the idea that you can't really prepare for the gig without being on the gig, that there's, you're really describing to me the difference, or you're really outlining, you know, the concept of depth. Like, what is it to know something? Mm-hmm. You know, in academia or in most people's life, say you're in history class and you memorize a fact, you know, the War of 1812 was in 1812, you know, you can ace your history test, right? Right. But do you really know history? Do you really understand that event? Have you gone as deep as... And so a lot of the time in academia, and most people's academia is sort of how they prepared for life, right? And they go into life. Right. That concept of depth, 
right? You know the song before you go on stage, but you don't know the song, mm. right? And this right. is something that any artist can just instantly relates to as I say this, right? I don't, it, it goes without saying to an artist, but that, that difference uh, often is in the failing, right? Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like, it's the, I mean, John Mayer says that his failure to be Jimi Hendrix is what John Mayer sounds like, mm. right? Like, that's who he wanted to be. I love and that. In the failing of that, he found himself. Mm. Uh, and we, I mean, we just, we do that all the time. You know, as as musicians, we're, the idea of, of practicing and, and being good at being bad at something yeah. is of course the, the the basis of neuroplasticity it, exactly, and, yeah. and it's why musicians suffer less from things like neural plaque in, in later years, right? That's like exactly from, uh, right. Alzheimer's yeah, we, we have like more uh, neurons, you know, the, the, the tree of the synaptic nerve growth, not to get too nerdy, is much, much more dense. Right. There's a lot more branches on them trees. Right. Um, yeah. And so, interconnectivity between the right and left hemisphere of the right, brain. It's, right. it's, so, and I think all of that. We're basically sent, super geniuses. Yes, exactly. Go on. Just, just, just say it. Go on. Uh, all of that uh, is, or, or central to all of that uh, is, is failure. But what's interesting is that even though like we know that, mm-hmm. or we've talked about that, you and I have talked about right. that, it's still not a concept that's easy to, uh, to wrestle with in our own psyches, and I know many musicians who uh, who haven't come to terms with it. The two mixers in my life, the people responsible for mixing the music that I do the most. One of them is a Grammy-winning producer mixer, John Kaplan. Yeah, great. The other one is Joey Deal, who is our front of house and production manager for Brett Young. Right, and he mixes us every night. Yeah, right. He mixes us. Every night, it's the same show for the most part, mm-hmm. but he's mixing it live. Yeah. And John Kaplan, on the other hand, does our studio work, uh-huh. does my studio work specifically. And the thing about Kaplan is he only has to get it right once, but he has to get it right once at such a high fidelity <laughs> that, you know, the the six hours he spends getting it wrong until it's right, uh, you know, say a mix takes him six hours, like once it's right, it's boom, it's done. Right. Joey is in a constant flow state of failure and success. Right. He's in and out. And the two of them had a conversation when we played Los Angeles last. And uh, Kaplan said, I could never do what you do. Mm-hmm. Joey said, oh, you would crush this. And he's like, no, nah, man, because the moment I got something wrong, I'd want to go back and fix it. Interesting. But for Joey, it's the next moment he has the opportunity to fix. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. <laughs> I love that. And it, it, it brings up, uh, another example of sort of all of the levels in which we as, you know, creative artists and our different gigs wrestle with failure. So we wrestle with failure when we're trying to finish the mix for our records. I, I, I don't mix myself, but, you know, obviously mm-hmm. I need to supervise if it's, if it's you know, a Jacob Zakeli trio album or, right. you know, my own project. And the mix is never really done, is it? It's like, it's more like we no. have to let go. It's like it beats us into submission that's and so we keep true. fixing and fixing. Oh, that's and true for writing so, too. That's true for... Yeah, we fail in our writing, right? To not be Jimi Hendrix or what the, the John Mayer quote you said, which was, was 
also, awesome. Leonardo da Vinci is, uh, it's like, I think this is apocryphal, but uh, Leonardo da Vinci is quoted on his deathbed saying, you know, my, my biggest regret is that I've left so much unfinished. Oh my God, dude. I love it's that. Like, we're never done with the work. We just have to stop working on it. Right. right? It's a practice. It's not finished. We just have to stop. It's such an amazing metaphor. So even that is kind of wrestling with our ego because we have to accept failure on some level. Right. Because we mm. know no matter how much say we work on one of our own projects. And mm-hmm. I, I keep coming back to if it's one of like our own projects because that's where our ego is the most invested. Sure. Right? It's like, this yeah. is us. So we've both had multiple experiences now of uh, at this point in our careers of putting everything, like everything we can possibly give into a project, every yeah. bit of money, every mm-hmm. bit of personal resources, every bit of time, you know, listen to every the mix a million times, yeah, every favor a, we could mm-hmm. call in, yeah. every bit of our soul into the songwriting, mm-hmm. every bit of our craft into the, you know, the guitar playing or the cello playing in my case. And yet I think we always knew in the back of our minds and we, it's very clear now listening back to those projects. Uh, and I don't know if you ever listen back to your old stuff, we should probably talk about that in a minute too. But my point is, is that we know that in the end, it's going to be a failure on some level. Oh yeah. It's not going to be, um, even our very best is ultimately a failure. Um, uh, but as I've always said, I mean, will you can't get to your fifth album before you do your first four. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's like mm-hmm. getting ready for the gig, you know, that uh, which, which you said earlier. Understanding that process and growing richer and deeper in it as you make more albums. Right. It's, I, I can't think of any word other than a spiritual process. And again, right. this is coming from an atheist. But when I think about what monks do or what, you know, uh, nuns do, you know, in their monasteries or, you know, Buddhist monks or whatever, where they're meditating all day or praying all mm-hmm. day, it's a practice. Like you said, they're not trying to get there, but they're trying to confront the ego's need to, to be there, to get there, you know, to... And so mm. um, it mm-hmm. really is... You know, every day, you know, obviously making a record and doing all and putting it out there in the world is on the the macro level. But on the micro level, every day that I even getting up and having to look in the mirror or turn on the recorder or turn on the video recorder, you know, all of the little tools I use, you know, maybe it's the voice notes on Uh on my iPhone. And know that the minute I hit that red button and listen back, I'm not going to sound as good as the person I think I am, the artist oh, I believe yeah. myself to be, mm-hmm. you know, that that my ego proclaims that I am, you know, uh, is just unbelievably, um, it's a pride-swallowing siege. Like, every time, I mean, even <laughs> at my time. age, even at my... So the pain is still there, but much like an expert meditator mm-hmm. or those Muay Thai guys that keep yeah. hitting this hard... Uh, my wife, Diana, who's a fitness freak and Mm -hmm. a super trainer and all of this she got me doing a little bit of muay thai with this guy she found and you know it's the same way you know that they keep hitting uh and kicking like i think in thailand like actual like palm trees or some Mm -hmm. really hard surface or punching into the sand and it's not that the pain ever goes away but as they form those calluses their relationship to the pain changes and so 
Um, yeah, it's the same in meditating, right? It's like the mm-hmm. thoughts never go away. I had this huge breakthrough in my in my meditating, and I've been meditating for at least twenty years. Um, but only recently did I actually realize that oh, it's not about trying to get to a point where you're not thinking. Those thoughts they're always going to be there, but your relationship to the thoughts. You know, the negative thoughts, all those thoughts can change. Right. That's why for us, failure is a value and not an obstacle. Oh, yeah, man. That's exactly it. And that's a super important concept for me, because when you uh, expect failure, or when you embrace failure, everything is an opportunity. Right. As opposed to expecting perfection, in which case... Uh, you're just a victim. Yeah, yeah, like the myth of other, of younger musicians or maybe students that we've had or whatever in the past was that now that you and I are quote-unquote really good musicians or experienced musicians, Mm -hmm. somehow we fail less and so we enjoy music more, but we actually fail more, (laughs) right? As our sensibilities, Mm -hmm. right, become deeper, like as my sense of like how in tune a note could really possibly be, right, right? Mm -hmm. or how perfect that that strum, how in time it could really be, all of a sudden we're actually, we fail more or at least just as much as we did when we were beginners. Right. It, the, it's the the uh, the failures uh, on a scale like relatively they're small. So like these are these are things that would not be a failure to a beginning musician. Right, but they still hurt to us. Yeah, right. But that relationship, you know, right. has mm-hmm. changed. It's like that's that's how we grow now. Right. And because we we understand that and just through our lived experience, um, right, and it gives us the potential to grow. Because without that, right, there's no. Oh sure. There's no. Yeah, failure is the teacher. Failure is the best teacher. Right. Right. It's an aphorism. I mean, I mean, yeah. It's it's something that most people can understand intellectually. Sure. Right. But like, yeah, like you said, so many of our even our musician friends, people who have even achieved incredible levels of you know even you know higher level musicians than even us. Um, it's it's something that still isn't necessarily. Um, Obvious. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, when I was 18, mm-hmm. and I was, uh, it was my first year, I was a freshman at the Cleveland Institute of Music, mm-hmm. and my dad got me this amazing birthday slash Hanukkah slash, you know, thank God you're finally out of the fucking house gift mm-hmm. <laughs> of a video camcorder. This was like a huge deal for me because it had picture and also it had way higher quality sound than the kind of tape deck I was using, which was like more hiss than audio, (laughs) you know, when I would try to listen back to my practicing. And it was obvious to me that this was a total game changer, that this was going to expose everything in my playing that I needed exposed, and then I would be able to work on it and fix it and get better, right? All, all the things uh, that I was getting from my tape recorder, but just, you know, 10 x And I remember setting it up and putting it on the little tripod I had in my practice room, and I was so excited, man. And then I, I remember that feeling the minute I got up to push the red button. You know, I warmed up and tuned up and all that. It's like that little red devil on your shoulder. Uh, and that little voice said, oh, this is great, man, but, you know, I don't think you're quite ready 
right. today. You know, right. maybe, you know, here's what, you know, practice for a couple more hours and then, you know, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll crank this baby out tomorrow, right? That little red light is daunting. <laughs> right? Every time. Yeah. Like when, if, as soon as you hit the record button, your ears grow 10 sizes. Right. Because yeah. you're guaranteed to fail. Oh my God. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. And also, you know, your focus becomes so singular. Right. You no longer see whatever you're doing in context of a larger, uh, well, in context of, of, a larger context, right? Right. <laughs> the uh, we you are listening like to this I'm on one this part. process, and right. I'm on it permanent. And so, it makes it permanent. And like you said, 10x. The uh, the idea is you are turning this thing on in order to expose those things, right? And even right? that red light is helping mm-hmm. us build the most important mental muscle musicians can have, right? Which mm-hmm. is like that focus, that right. ability to be in that mm-hmm. moment, have that singular focus. And even knowing that, even knowing that, that's what that unit was for right and all the great things it would do you were like you had to you like couldn't turn it on be yeah right fuck no 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 for fear for feel for fear of the failure you were trying to expose in the first place yeah of the truth and that's the difference between knowing something intellectually right like i don't think Mm -hmm. we're saying anything controversial that most people couldn't relate to but again it's it's our relationship to this the depth of that relationship in practice Mm -hmm. ontologically you know as lived through our own experience (laughs) that uh is is kind of unique so anyway long story short with the camera (laughs) by the way nobody's is long story short uh, in a short story, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh, so it, it took me a month. Mm-hmm. It, t- it literally took me it a took month. You a month of setting it up, s- s- having it. I left it set up, man. Okay. That thing was collecting dust by the time <laughs> I touched the button. I had to like right. wipe the dust off the button. Uh-huh. It was there in my practice room for a month, and every day I went through that same, same process, and uh-huh. I could not climb that mountain. You know, conquer the mm-hmm. little little guy on my shoulder. Um, and sure enough, after I recorded, I, I still remember this day I was working on, a, it's a big cello concerto piece. It's called the Shlomo, which is, you know, right. a Jewish theme piece, but Shlomo. by, yeah, uh, unbelievable. It's, it's like one of the kind of war horse, you know, masterpieces of the, you know, the cello uh, repertoire. And uh, so I recorded it and just like I thought, I went and watched the video and I had my pencil and paper, you know, I listened to it once and I started taking notes and man, it was like, okay, yeah, this spot, okay, I see like, you know, that shift is off. Okay, this spot, I'm not, I'm not anticipating the bow chain. This spot, I just had this incredible laundry list. I went back to my practice room with just amazing focus and awareness of those mm-hmm. places, right? Having mm-hmm. been able to stand outside my own body and right. actually even see myself, you mm-hmm. know, with this um, beautiful picture or what I thought was beautiful is probably like 320p or whatever, but, right. <laughs> it, it, but, uh, but. I had the practice session of my life. Like mm. I grew more. Right. It, because and because growth is a value, right? Failure is a value. Exactly. Right. And exactly. That, I I don't think that that's uh I don't think that's a really big stretch. It's just hard because we uh we suffer from the fear. We suffer from the fear of failure. At exactly. All times, right. Exactly. And I think I honestly think that it goes back to um our expectations. I think you know we talk about this a long time, to- a lot. Um, our buddy Keaton Simons, you know, is, is a preacher of the no expectation, right? Jacob, on the other hand, 
uh, is more of a realist than that. He's more into the low expectations, right? right? <laughs> my my perspective uh, is one of uh, shifting your expectations mm. so that you're not thinking about outcomes. You're thinking about approaches. Right. Right? right. So we walk into uh, a rehearsal. We walk into a show. We walk into a studio or a conversation. Yeah. Right? Whatever that is. And rather than looking for the outcome or trying to be observant of the outcome, uh, being observant of the process and how you engage with it. Right. uh, Because you expect or you embrace the failure and you see failure as an opportunity. And that opportunity is an opportunity for you to grow, for you to fix things that are broken. Right. Even things you didn't know were broken, right? Yeah. Like at the end of the day for me, when I'm journaling, one of the most important questions I ask myself is, what did you fail at today? Mm. And it's, you know, if you flip it around, it's really like asking, how did I get outside of my comfort? Or in what ways did I get outside of my comfort zone and risk myself, like put myself... Uh, at issue to the point where I could actually grow. And, you know, most people, as they get older, you know, you, you have... Did you say, you said put, put myself at issue? Yeah. What does that mean? I think it means basically put myself on the line. Mm, okay. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and so I, I feel like a lot of people, as they age, like we all have friends that are, you know, in their 30s now and you know, maybe even early 40s. Uh, and there's this strange progression of uh, growth kind of slowing down. Um, you know, people tend right. to not uh, not be into as many things as, as they used to. Uh, okay. They don't try as many things. You know, they've kind of pruned their activity tree. They right. prune their friend tree. As we they've become pruned. better, as we become better at certain things in our life, we start uh, cutting out the things that we're not good at. We yeah. start doing those things. Right. And I mean, yeah. I think specialization it can be important, you know, in certain areas and all of that. And, and I get that. But I think there's this bigger issue of the danger in all of that as far as if our goal is to grow and have as many peak life experiences as possible, mm-hmm. is that they're failing less often as they become oh, more comfortable and right. entrenched in their lives. And so something kind of atrophies, wow. uh, something dies. And I, I would even, I would venture to say, and this is just a complete guess, obviously, uh, that that could even be seen neurologically you know like there's kind of this 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 uh either or thing but of course we are just bodies this is coming from the atheist right uh there's and and our brains you know as as doctors see people's kind of mind and intellect mm-hmm. and things kind of you know decaying over time i feel like part of that might be the fact that we're we're not failing as much um, we we find comfort zones in things in our relationships and our lives and our um, routines and all of these things. Sure, yeah, or maybe I'll offer a different perspective because okay. I, I do think that this is true. I uh, I do have to uh, engage mindfully in practices in things that I'm not good at. I have to be willing to do that. Right. I have to be willing to say. Uh, I have to be willing to do the things I'm not good at in order to uh, keep myself creative right. and exciting, right? Right. Um, but there are, are maybe there are fewer things that we fail at 
regularly as we grow older. But you already said as we get older, we fail more, but we have a better understanding of, uh, of, each of the things we do and ideally so, right well yeah so but i mean even when it if comes we're pursuing to, excellence like musicians yes sure but let's talk about cutting onions okay cutting right? onions every onion you cut uh you have an opportunity to use as much of that onion as possible to get the right shape of cut when you dice it to not uh you know burst into tears mm-hmm. uh to not uh, end up with onion skin and a little hair from the onion all over. There's so many subtleties to cutting an onion that you have to do every day. And as you get, you get better at it over time, right? You do, but you still have to cut the onions. Sure. You know? Uh, and I think that there's so many things like that in our lives that we, uh, that we do continue to fail at uh, on a regular basis, but we our, our focus shifts away from them. There's no longer any, uh, like the braking in the car. Right. There's no longer any weight put on that. So right. we don't think of that as a growth opportunity. Right. And I, I think that's something that, you know, going back to the idea of specialization, when we're young, everything is a new hobby, a new uh, experience, a new... Oh, right. But we have no ego invested in it because we're newbies. We're everybody's, beginners. Yeah, we're bad at everything. Yeah. And everybody's exactly. bad at everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, I watch my son right now. Mm-hmm. He's one year and four, five months. He's and pretty bad at walking. He's horrible at everything, and <laughs> but there's no... There's no <laughs> ego investment, and therefore, right, no therefore, expectation he in him grows. Being yeah. yeah, without mm-hmm. that expectation, mm-hmm. he can just grow exponentially because right. he can fail so fast. Mm-hmm. I once heard uh, the coach of the uh, the Kentucky uh, basketball team, men's basketball team, and uh, as I said, in, in in Kentucky or in some cultures, like the one I had growing up in Lexington, sports is kind of. The other area. It's the other area. of, And uh, so John Calipari, the coach, he said, I want my guys to fail, but I want them to fail fast so that they can fail over and over and over again mm-hmm. in, a, in a short span of time. Mm-hmm. Um, almost as if the number of failures was like a metric, like rebounding or right. shooting percentage well, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, But the higher the failure rate, the higher the growth, right? The right. higher the upside. And I, I love that. I loved uh, that idea, you know, to 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 fail fast, and so having new things, getting outside of mm-hmm. a lot of the time, right? That's uh, important. Be, uh, it, it really is, and engaging in the new things, I think, is uh, is part of what uh, is, is is what we would call an important practice for how to, you know, um, really actively engage with that value. Right. But if you're just cutting onions, Wait, like yeah, you said, like, having an artist perspective, that's sure. kind of what I hear you saying, having an artist approach to being the that Zen onion and the cutter, art of cutting onions. Yeah, can give you the same kind of benefits. But it's also other things, uh, I mean, we, we go more spiritual, uh, let's say from the Christian perspective, uh, uh, we... Uh, you know, our our mandate is to be like Jesus, right? Christian liter- means literally little little Christ. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and but to fail at being like Jesus is um uh, is is expected, right? To fail at being like Jesus, that's that's human. That's what it means to be human. To fail at being God, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to fail to try is well, that's unacceptable. Right. Then you're not on the path. You're not on the walk, mm-hmm. and that sort of is at the root of Christianity is a continual, continuous, necessary failure. 
And what that breeds uh, is grace. Absolutely. Yeah. Not just for ourselves, but for... Yeah. For other people too. For other people as well. So that's why, I mean, going back to why it's a value and not an obstacle is, you know, failure breeds growth and failure also breeds grace. And it also breeds presence, right? Presence has to be there in this presence state. Otherwise, we Another virtue. Yeah, we kind of default into our comfort zone if we're not, if we don't have presence. Now, obviously, that presence, it's very easy to be present uh, when you're in this heightened state of the red light being on in like a, you know, million dollar recording studio. Or when you're doing something pleasurable as well. Right. right? Or when you're playing in front of 10,000 people, Mm. right? Well, it's harder to be present maybe in that particular situation. Oh, interesting. That's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. But one of my f- absolute favorite uh, artists' uh, commentaries on this is uh, this thing I heard Louis C.K. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on Conan, and Conan was asking him about why he doesn't let his daughters have cell phones. Mm. And instead of giving a direct answer, <laughs> like he, he goes into this incredible story about being in his car by himself uh, without any screen or cell phone, obviously, and right. just... just I think he heard like Bruce Springsteen sing something, but he was just really in this flow state, really present to mm-hmm. to the song. And he said he had to just stop and turn off, turn off the radio. And he just pulled over to the side of the road and just, it was just this moment of just feeling like how, how sad life is. Mm-hmm. Um, and just started crying, just like weeping like a bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 and... And then he said, after like a minute or two of just like sobbing, you know, the the body has this system of, you know, evening itself out, you know, right. homeostasis. And, mm-hmm. you know, so the endorphins started rushing back and he just felt mm. this beautiful heightened state of just joy mm-hmm. uh, and peacefulness. And yeah. 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 Like he'd made peace with that again, just in that little mm. moment somehow. Yeah. Wow. It's such a beautiful story. Yeah. And then he said, so that's why I don't let my kids have cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> it seems non sequitur. And, and yet yeah, it was this uh, th- this presence. What he was saying is, is that everything around us, you know, as encapsulated by the cell phone, which most of us spend like all of our time on now. Like, I don't know if you have this, but on the iPhone, they just launched this thing where it the tells screen you screen time. time. Oh, yeah, totally. oh my God, dude, it's yeah. horrible. <laughs> it, 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 but, it, but it's bold that they did that kind of like the restaurants where they post all the calories you know like oh, right. if you're a fast food restaurant like if you're a Popeye's chicken <laughs> and you're voluntarily posting the calorie count that is a ballsy move oh, like no, this you're not, that's not it's not it's compulsory at this point you have to in some it. states yeah, yeah um, but I mean there's not a, not a lot of win in that for yeah, you right. like as a business um, but <laughs> but yeah so I, I think what, what the point of it was is that not only cell phones, which is 99% of most people's existence now looking at some kind of screen, but virtually everything around us is engineered to, you know, to keep us in the middle, you know, to keep us, you know, kind of distracted and, you know, horny and, uh, but not really present for life. We don't get those high highs and those low lows. Mm. And that's really comfortable for us. Like there's a reason why that's so soothing, you know, to just, you know, fall into the iPhone screen and, you know, go down a YouTube rabbit hole or whatever because because there's there's no there's no lows. Most people I think I heard Sam Harris, uh the moral philosopher, talk about this, but they did this study where they asked people if you knew you could have 
five minutes of the most incredible pleasure, but it would have to be followed by five minutes of the most incredible pain, or just nothing, just regular life mm-hmm. as you're living it. A vast majority of people chose regular life. Well, see, that's interesting to me. I, it Those were the seem... non-artists. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> That's, that's my <laughs> it doesn't seem that doesn't seem surprising to me, but the but mostly I think that that's actually how life is. That's actually how, in my experience, that's how reality is. It's there are moments of high highs followed by moments of low lows that, uh, and that's like, I I mean the moment and and they can be followed like and they happen so quickly. Uh, you know, there's a moment of just ecstasy when uh, you when you get it right on a stage, right. or in a studio, or you're in a writer's room, or just straight up when you have an orgasm, right? Right. But then following that orgasm is that moment of clarity, right? Of like, who am I? <laughs> who what is this I? person I've just slept? Not in our cases. What was your name again? <laughs> Just like uh, everything leading up to this moment, like was it like who who was I leading up to this moment? <laughs> yeah, but that's I mean that's I guess it all comes back to this idea that failure is the thing that puts us in touch with what it means to be human. Yes, and that's why it's a value, right? And that's why we try to embrace it and like change our relationship to it uh, instead of thinking of it as an obstacle or somehow, you know, uh, being something worthy of. Shame. Well, if you valued this podcast, you can support us at our Patreon page. <laughs> we don't have a Patreon set up yet. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, but maybe we will at some point. In well, any case, just send us an email and tell us you thought it was cool. Well, yeah, we'll take that. I think that's enough on this topic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, we're good. All right. That sounds good, Jacob. Until next time, I'm Noah. I'm Jacob. This is the Yellow Light Go podcast. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.